0: Hey, And welcome to Connect. Today, we're going to talk about the metaverse, starting with the most important experience of all, connecting with people. That was Mark Zuckerberg in October 2021, setting out his transformative new vision for a new reality called the metaverse. For many, it set off alarm bells worldwide we were already aware of Facebook's fraught history as an omnipresent tech giant and remained sceptical about the company's future intentions. As if big tech hasn't done enough damage to our society already, I asked my guest today, Herman Nerula, the CEO of the British unicorn startup Improbable, are we ready for the next epoch of the digital revolution, the metaverse? This is Ari Stein and you're listening to the 52 Insights Podcast. Improbable has been quietly building the piping of the metaverse for several years. Helming a global company of a thousand, Narula has enormous plans for this space. He emerged as an enthusiastic computer scientist out of Cambridge in the early 2010s. He grew to form a principled vision of the metaverse, one that benefits us all, promising us a tech kaleidoscope that will make our lives not only more comfortable, but rewarding in every way. However, there are so many ethical questions to ask here before this technology actually becomes ubiquitous. How will it change our social lives? How will it change our behaviour? Who owns what? And will it further disrupt the fabric of society? All these questions were fair game for Herman in this chat, but we also covered a lot of prior ground that included his first-hand account behind his company's torturous beginnings getting the tech right. We discuss Web3's liberating promise and its integration into this space. How the future metaverse could inspire speciation. Could a Pol Pot or Hitler styled figure arise in the metaverse? And is there a need for government were the metaverse to flourish? I hope you enjoyed this dense chat as much as I did. Oh, and I'm also running a giveaway for this episode. I have two copies of Herman's book, virtual society to give away if you want one please fire a dm at me in any of my social media channels with your name and one line as to why you think the metaverse will be good or bad for humankind and please subscribe to the 52 insights podcast on apple and spotify and sign up to my newsletter to get notifications of when my next interview will show up love it or hate it, leave a comment on the 52 Insights Apple podcast page or hit me up on social media. Your comments help keep this platform alive. Herman Narula, CEO of Improbable. Welcome to the 52 Insights podcast.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure to be chatting with you. We do know each other in some other way. Um, I, have, I, I run a, a great festival in London called COGX, and you've spoken there previously. You did actually a great discussion um, with the CTO of the Serpentine. Um, Um, Great. Yeah, it was really insightful. For those of you that want to check it out, you can see it on YouTube. But I shouldn't be promoting someone else's discussion. (laughs) We should be talking about this one. Uh, We're going to be cutting through uh, a lot of hot air because the metaverse is full of hot air right now. So we want to be talking about lots of the good stuff, the real stuff, um, and that's why you've written a book. Um, but you're normally based in London. You're sitting in a hotel room in New York right now. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we had a little bit of our team offsite here and uh, some meetings with customers. So New York, it is. But normally, I'm in London.
0: And what does a team offsite usually look like? Oh no, it's just we are we are quite distributed. So
1: a lot of our folks, um, we have executives in LA and also in London. We're quite a um, we're quite a remote team since COVID. So. It made sense to meet here, just given we were also doing some customer meetings, and everybody sort of wound up here. And it's a great opportunity for our leadership team to just come together and rapid yeah. fire go through a bunch of decisions that normally would take us quite a lot of time asynchronously. So yeah, it was very productive and very nice, and great just to meet everybody. You know, I I personally get so much energy from the people that I work with. You know, nine yeah. years almost in these you know these people are why why this is fun. So it's it's uh, always great to spend time with them.
0: What is your take um uh on the enormous railroading that's going on in the tech industry right now? Every time I uh switch on my LinkedIn, just talking about employee culture, there is a at least a 20% layoff uh pivot right now for a lot of tech companies. What's your take on all <laughs> yeah?
1: Look, i mean we we ourselves went through a leaning period in the beginning of the year you, you may have seen some of the stories around how we were focusing more on our metaverse business and you know i think we uh, we sold one of our studios early in january um you know and we we were fortunate in that we made a lot of those changes i think a little bit before things got really really bad uh, in tech in general but i think we we the way I would describe it is look we're lucky in that we provide a service and a business that's now reached a point where, you know, famously with companies like Bordapes, but also with 60 different publishers and others, you know, we've transitioned from being a technology development and investment phase business to a growth phase revenue generating business. But that sort of luck aside, um, you know, it is a good and natural thing for companies to be in that technology and investment phase. The world needs companies that are generating IP and solving hard problems and are not necessarily generating revenue right away. That that's you know how we've had some of the most compelling breakthroughs in everything from AI with companies like DeepMind back in the day, uh, you know, two areas in autonomous driving. And we've now reached a point where, due to the larger macroeconomic changes, and I'm by no means an expert on this, this is something I myself am I'm learning more about you know, it it just is a little bit of a nuclear winter for the access to large amounts of capital for startups. And investors too are unclear on whether now is the right moment to deploy capital. So a lot of my friends in VC are telling me that, hey, you know, while there is money in funds, they don't know if, they sh- if, if we've hit the bottom in different parts of the market, if now is the moment to deploy it. And, you know, there are code words in in kind of the VC world, like being selective or more targeted. You know, I think what they all really mean is people are scared. And, you know, we are also in a very unprecedented situation. We had a pandemic, we have a war, we had crazy irresponsible fiscal policy for a couple of years, you know, with a massive money printer machine, we had, you know, a lot of different factors that I don't think in in, you know, I'm, relatively young and new to, to the world of work, you know, only been doing this 10 years or so, but even more experienced old hands that I've spoken with, you know, this is, this is a pretty wild time. So I think what it, I think what it means is I think the high valuation, um, you know, low revenue startup is out of fashion and it's all about profit. Now it's all about revenue generation. It's all about customer relationships, driving innovation. Yeah. If you can't make that leap or that transition, then I think it's tough to see
0: how companies are going to survive. Herman, how old are you? I am
1: 34, I think. Yes, I am 34. 34. That is
0: that, that makes you a uh I don't know what star sign you are. This will be the first time someone's asked you that in a podcast.
1: I mean, I I I I, I guess I'm an Aries. I think I'm an Aries. <laughs> right. Let's go with that.
0: That makes you bullish on the market. Um well. Sorry. <laughs> I
1: <I'm> pretty bearish <laughs> on the market, you know? Yeah. But you're right. Look, you can't you can't um open a news article now without seeing uh layoffs and changes. I also think look, there's a there's a bad side to it, of course. We we shouldn't downplay the the negative associations of that. You know, this is people's jobs, people's lives for startup founders who just found themselves unlucky or at the wrong time in the cycle. And as I said earlier, you know, I'm very proud of the work we do at Improbable. I'm very excited by um, the momentum we now have in the metaverse space. We were also very lucky in terms of timing. Um, so we shouldn't downplay the role of luck in this. But I will say there are also a lot of companies that, you know, you know, and a lot of a lot of um larger tech businesses that have in the age of free money that were coming out of, they've made quite spread bet investments. And although it's really painful in the short term it might be a good corrective thing in the medium to long term for valuations to come back down to earth for companies to allocate capital in more productive ways and for you know roles and types of work that didn't make sense to sort of die Mm
0: -hmm. tell me herman um i want to talk about what you've built here because it's you know it's beautiful and uh you know that people want to understand exactly what it consists of but i want to step back just a little bit for our audience what your background consists of uh for a 34 year old at the helm of one of the biggest metaverse companies on earth um, having raised an enormous amount of money as well a lot of responsibility where did you come from um, and how well, you ended up here?
1: I'd say the most important part of my story is that it's not really my story. Um, you know, I'm really fortunate that I have an incredible group of early founders who are still with me and amazingly talented executives, people like Lincoln Wallen, who was CTO of DreamWorks for many years. Uh, you know, Robert Whitehead, my co-founder, who um, as chief product officer has developed so much of the key technology that you see improbable kind of drive. Uh, you know, folks like Peter Lipka and Dan O'Dell, um, you know, Natalia Strauch, both, you know, from Disney, who've, who've really kind of grown the business. But, you know, myself, I, I started the company straight out of college with a few other partners, Rob. Which college? Uh, Paul, uh, Cambridge. We all Cambridge, met at Cambridge. Right. Yeah. And and we were all computer scientists. We were passionate gamers. We really believed in the problem we were trying to solve, which was the problem of building richer, more, frankly, just more meaningful games. You know, I think the frustration of any passionate gamer is you put all these hours in, but what does it mean in the end? You know, it feels like it should mean more, that it should matter more, that it should somehow stretch deeper into your life or into your ability to have rich and vivid experiences. And we saw that as a technology problem first and foremost, because, you know, worlds are just very limited in how much reality they can kind of bring to you. And not graphical reality, but the immersive reality of, how much stuff can happen in them, the interactive possibilities of of an MMO or a virtual world. And so a lot of Improbable's early work was in pioneering new techniques to vastly increase the amount of what we call operations per second, which is kind of like the megahertz of the metaverse. How do we get that number so high that we can have thousands of people or, you know, as we showed on Friday, 20,000 people or more in dense virtual spaces, in rich worlds that can have marketplaces or huge Cityscapes, you know, that's something that we really believe is an ingredient and a key to the future of human experience.
0: Right. So you went to Cambridge, you were a passionate computer scientist, you felt like the value model within gaming was a little bit off. So you decided to course correct it. And now you're the CEO of Improbable. Tell us in 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 a in a sense, what does the metaverse mean? Because uh, I have a, some pretty good connection points to the metaverse. I just programmed a chat with Michael Abrash um, at COGX, who you might know is the of pioneering the, the metaverse for meta. We're going to get to meta in a sec as well, which is quite meta. Um, and um, understanding what, but for those of us outside the sphere of technology a little bit, I think the best definition I've heard of it is embodied internet.
1: I I don't know if I love that definition because it is too similar and too much like many other things, you know, is a video game, a metaverse, you know, any, any example where you're piloting an avatar could then be the metaverse. I think the metaverse is something more specific than that. I would say that the metaverse is a network. It's a network of meaningful people, things, events, places, that are tied together in in a very specific way that allows for the transfer of value between worlds. And I don't think a metaverse needs technology to be in existence. So I would say the relationship that the real world has with the world of sport is, in a sense, a metaverse. You know, the stuff that happens in the world of sport kind of doesn't matter, right? It doesn't really matter who wins the World Cup. And yet it deeply matters. It deeply matters who wins the World Cup. And the events, the people, the things that happen in the world of sport... They, they, they kind of transfer value from that world into the real world. And that's what makes the metaverse and the worlds contained within the metaverse yeah. different from just a video game. A video game is a closed loop of meaning. Right. There is no relationship between the experiences inside one world and another world. And that that transfer of value the notion of meaningful experiences that provide fulfillment and the idea of the metaverse being about the relationship between worlds is a very, very important to me separation between it and the world of video games.
0: I would, I I totally agree with you. I would slightly challenge that by saying, I think that's where we want to get to. But right now in its infancy, it still potentially feels like a 1.0 iteration. But I would love to know what you have pioneered here because sure. I mean, I think, yeah, sorry.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. You're right to say that people yourself included should be skeptical because a lot of what people are passing off as the metaverse these days are just video games. And if you put a VR headset on your face and Mm -hmm. play a video game, that's still a video game. And that is something that is just there to entertain and to entertain you in quite specific and narrow ways. One of the things we've been able to do is go beyond those experiences. You know, we've put thousands of people. Yeah, tell us in about that. Yeah. Crowds. yeah so if you've, if you've seen earlier this year first trip, which we did with Eager Labs, the creators of Board Apes Yacht Club, or some of the other events that we've that we've released, you know, traditionally in a video game, you can only have ten or hundred people kind of hanging out. And so when you hear about something like a concert in Fortnite, that's not really a concert in the fulfilling sense of a real world concert. You know, you're not actually seeing and hanging out with this star, you're not actually in the roar of a crowd where your actions and the actions of that crowd and that celebrity interrelate to each other in this beautiful human and dynamic way. The reason none of that happens is because those types of experiences are computationally vastly beyond the capabilities of a game like Fortnite or really any other metaverse uh, capability on the planet. And so we we alighted on that problem as being quite an important problem to solve because if you can't give people experiences that are differentiated from normal video games, then there's no real economic or practical pathway to building a metaverse that people should invest their time and energy in, right? Because they can just go play games. So with First Trip, we were able to put thousands of people, not by downloading a client, just by clicking a button, jumping into a world where they could all see each other, all interact with each other, all hear each other speak at the Mm. same time. So you could hear a crowd, you could hear those like strange um, human phenomenon of groups of people just like interacting in wild ways. And we put performers live into the world, not recordings, not some kind of preset dance move, but really there in their glory as as kind of present human beings interacting together. Now I think of things like the world of sport. And I think how many football fans of a club like Manchester United or FC Barcelona have ever been to a game? You know, there are fans around the world who never have. What if we could put all of those fans into a crowd together, have them interact together? And that isn't to say that the only value of the metaverse is large-scale experiences. But large-scale experiences are probably the first thing that you can usefully do in the metaverse that you can't do in a video game because video games generally don't create the opportunity for those types of experiences, not just because of technology, but also because of the nature of what they are as game experiences. And I think that's also the first example of, a family of experiences that interrelate yeah. to each other as well. You know, like, for example, in, in our first trip, people brought their board Apes, they brought their NFTs from outside the game world into the game world. And that was an incredible moment where we could show that network of meaning, that relationship between content. And I just, I'll just close by saying that yeah. VR in particular and immersive technologies, like tech works well with VR, but I'm very skeptical that, that what we need in order to create tangible human value in the metaverse is better graphics. I think what we need is better experiences and there's a difference in the two.
0: Yeah, beautifully said. And I think that's where, that's where we're heading. And tell us about some of the experiences because you mentioned First Trip, but you've also done a collaboration, which is probably more up to date now, Board 8 with Yuga Labs. Um, and you did something with Snoop Dogg at the, the VMAs as well, I read. Oh, that was
1: that was actually a little bit different. So yeah. in the VMAs, uh, Snoop Dogg and Eminem used their Bored Ape avatars as part of their performance. Right. But that wasn't directly connected with the metaverse experience we'd created other than the fact that they used their Bored Apes, which is more a relationship with Yuga Labs. Right. But no, right. the um the stuff that we've been doing lately is pushing the boundaries of what that scale could be. So I just want to, you know, give you an idea of a number. Um, A lot of the stuff that made the internet really amazing today boiled down to improving bandwidth, improving the capabilities of computers and machines. Like you couldn't have done YouTube in 1995, right? That just, it wasn't viable for that to happen. You know, people didn't have internet connections where streaming video was realistically going to be widespread. In the same way, the metaverse relies upon the ability to handle much, much more information exchange on the back end and down to a user. So a traditional video game like Fortnite can handle 100 players by means of about 10,000 messages a second being sent between all of those people in the world. Mm. To do First Trip, to handle thousands of people at the same time, we had to build a system that could process a billion messages a second. And then we had to use machine learning to actually understand how to send that information down to every client in an efficient way, um, which was an entirely new breakthrough in the way bandwidth is handled. So while other companies work on graphics, which, you know, you can plug into what we do, we're much more interested in the idea of communication, networking, and meaning. How do you make the world interactive? How do you make the world sure. become a place where you can speak and see and interact in a, at a much larger scale? That seems like the heart of the metaverse for us.
0: Yeah, I actually first heard about you in 2017 so maybe we'll back up for a second just a couple years um so I was actually based at a co-working space called Second Home shout out to anyone listening who uh, I'm not I'm not in uh, London in Second Home anymore I'm, I'm out in Stockholm but um when I was working over there in in, in Second Home uh, I caught wind of this enormous fundraising round that you'd had done. And at the time, at least by my standards, working in tech and events and stuff, it was pretty unheralded for a British company.
1: Although although I'd say since then, there have been some, you know, I know. That, that felt like a large round then, but I think since then, that almost doesn't there, feel There was
0: one recently by a, <laughs> yeah. by a surgical company in Cambridge called CRM that raised 650 million. You in right. 2017 raised 502 million. Now, um, I remember there was just like a, a like the wind had left the room or was that feeling like, who the hell is this guy? Who the hell is this company? Um, then things just went quiet, if I may be totally honest with you. Um, I, I felt like we didn't hear from Improbable for a few years and now you've just raised the number again and before that. What was the... Um, perhaps silence due to we we you working on a proof of concept was there a slowdown was there because a lot of a lot of companies do tend to experience um, timing issues as well or have I got this storyline totally um yeah I think we, we,
1: we, um, I think we maybe got a lot less attention because as a primarily B2b company building technology and platforms like today we serve 60 different global publishers so if you've played the game fall guys, Our team built the multiplayer mode of Fall Guys. We are kind of defense business has been involved in multiple like real world. um, i got to be careful what I say here, but like they've been applied to solve real problems in the real world. We help speed up coronavirus modeling in the UK by 10,000 fold. Uh, We are at a place now where not only are we working with, you know, well-known companies like Yuga Labs, but... We're building an entire network of interconnected metaverses using our M squared network, which we can maybe touch upon a bit later. But a lot of what we do is the plumbing, the wiring, the infrastructure, the the bringing together and enabling of the success of others. Not a lot of what we do is about shouting about our own our own stuff. So that makes us quite different, um, perhaps, from some of the more household name companies that have raised a lot of capital. I also think, you know, as a business, we had a long journey to go on. You know, we were very fortunate to have investors that early that believed deeply in the progress we had made. Um, But, you know, we we needed to move. um, We needed to develop multiple generations of technology to get to the point where we can now do billions of operations a second. That wasn't something we could do in 2017. That took the invention of new networking protocols and approaches, new testing frameworks, new infrastructure, new ways of managing large-scale um, systems of this kind. Um, yeah, I would say it was a very challenging process. I mean, mm. we uh, we had a lot of a lot of challenges in getting from being a deep tech company solving hard problems to a real sure. business with. You know fast-growing revenue and an opportunity to create real global value it took years uh, the journey from the business from the beginning to now has been a very long very torturous and very complex one what i made think it we're so
0: on, torturous
1: well the technology problems have were just wild i mean people some people who experienced first trip earlier this year you know they clicked a the link they jumped in with thousands of people they were like this is we had some amazing feedback you know people like, this is miraculous mm. How how is how does this work how are you doing it there are still people who know who aren't even sure that it you know that it happened you know who who are even there um but that is the product of you know almost a decade of r&d and you know to 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 be in a position where you have to scrap entire architectures after years of work because Hmm. they don't work as you intended and Mm -hmm. to go through that wave after wave with our company has been really 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 tough you know i know there are folks for example um i have colleagues who work in areas like self-driving cars that's a similar journey. you know they, it, it took it, 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 that problem is a very hard one. And sometimes when you're working on really hard technical challenges, it, it takes wave after wave of getting there. It also took a long time to develop the skill sets required. You know, now we're almost a thousand people, a relatively stable company spread around the world with really experienced executives that, that are far smarter and more talented than me and, and our early founders. But getting to the point where we could build that type of machine around improbable, be trusted, to run and deploy games and experiences for, for, for projects was very tough. We went through quite a few failures in the early days as well. You know, we had indie games try our early technology. They were technically successful, but not commercially successful. Mm. That's a tough journey. You know, there's, there's, there, are, there are some businesses that you can launch and then, you know, scale to a million users that day. And there are others that are long, hard roads. But I personally believe sometimes that that latter type of business can unlock really enormous game-changing value that, that simply requires a bit of sacrifice along the way. Yeah.
0: I mean, I was going to follow up with a question, but I'm not going to pursue it anymore because I know exactly what you're going to do to that question, dismantle it and throw it (laughs) under the rug, which was, so you're not playing catch up to Nvidia and Roblox. You're in a totally different space and, 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 and and I get that. I get that. No,
1: but actually you, you, um, you do raise an interesting point in that, which is there's a lot of talk of the race to the metaverse and, something of what i'm something something of what i'm trying to do in my book with virtual society is dismantle the idea that we're even all talking about the same thing. You know, when Facebook talks about the metaverse, they basically mean a video game with VR that they control and take a large cut of. When Roblox talks about the metaverse, they're talking about a a powerful platform that i actually have a lot of respect for for creators, sure. especially young creators but it is fundamentally a closed platform of experiences where they take most of the value. Sure. When we talk about the metaverse, um we mean very different experiences first and foremost. So, we specifically want to focus on experiences that are not naturally um experiences that you can already have in a video game because what's the point? You know, why not open our minds to to new things? Yeah. Scale is part of that, but so are the different kinds of gameplay that can come from it. The second thing I'd say is my vision of the metaverse is intimately tied with Web3 and crypto, because I believe that transferring value from one world to another is what makes it a metaverse rather than sure. just a single virtual world. And that's also economically very important because you need businesses, content creators, artists, celebrities to confidently invest in a platform in order for that to become oh. a true other world or other reality. And what a lot a lot of these larger, more traditional companies are failing to do is successfully incentivize those players to feel like participants, owners, creators as part of that network. And you know, so what we're trying to do with with M Squared, which is the name of our internet of metaverses, is it isn't going to be entirely owned and controlled by Improbable. Um, you know, we've been really fortunate with the excitement, the success around um, first trip, and the influx of people who want to leverage the technology. But we're making everybody who does so agree the interoperability. You know, you can have the technology, but you have to agree that players can take their characters from one world to another, and we think that's the pathway to, yeah. to a genuine metaverse.
0: And I think you know it's interesting that you've written a book as a CEO because you know you've potentially opened yourself up to scrutiny. I mean, I don't see the CEO of Nvidia or Roblox or or, or Meta. I don't even know if Mark Zuckerberg is a human, but um, I don't see them writing books um, discussing their you know, their manifestation or their vision for, for the metaverse. And we're going to get into a, a couple of those things. You did mention Mark Zuckerberg and Meta. I did mention that I <clears throat> worked with Michael on an event and they he set out his vision in a demonstration. Yeah. I wasn't 100% convinced, um, but I'd love to know what you think of Mark Zuckerberg and Meta because I do tend to feel sorry for him sometimes. I mean, if you look at the market or the share price since their announcement in October 2021, it's cleaved in half, literally. It went from mid-300s down to, to 150. And so that says something about how the market have responded. And a lot of people feel like Meta has just fallen well flat. You know, you've suggested he's a tyrant or a feudal. I mean, or- I think
1: you're quoting there from the book um, some of the stuff on um, on, on him. And to, be, to be fair to Mark Zuckerberg, um, you know, I think we should start by acknowledging the many incredible achievements of, 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 of him and Facebook. You know, we, our lives, for a while at least, were definitely made better by the services that Facebook enabled. And this is sort of the paradox of every big tech company. They start by making things better right? They, they connect people or they sure. enable incredible access to information or they make it more efficient for buyers to connect to sellers in the case of Amazon or other companies in that space. But the problem sure. is that all of these ways of helping, they involve these companies ultimately owning or controlling a massive and vital database of information and becoming the gatekeepers of this 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 information that really belongs to all of us, because we are the people who contributed that information, right? We are the people who are posting messages or interacting together or posting YouTube videos or creating websites. And that creates a really perverse set of incentives where they become the kind of unwilling government of a system that they don't really want to regulate or control because they care primarily about its growth, not its quality, because its growth is ultimately what drives their metrics and their success. And ultimately, the commercial incentives are quite perverse. For example, in Facebook, it's all about attention, right? In Google, it's all about how many ads can be sold. Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple of reasons to believe that that isn't a good place to start to create a metaverse. It's not a good place to start because the implied control is completely the antithesis of the necessary investment required by people to build great content. A metaverse is not like YouTube or Facebook or anything else. Building a compelling game or experience that people want to spend time in costs a lot of money, takes a lot of time, and people can do that without platforms that other people provide. So you really have to ask yourself, why would you build your game or your experience, which may in fact cost you millions of dollars? Why would you do that on a platform Mm -hmm. which takes all of the upside and limits your access to your users? The relationship required between content creators and platforms needs to change. You know, it's a funny kind of historical example that I think is is funny in a way because it it, it might end up being how things work. But, you know, in British history, uh, we, you know, we used to have an absolute monarchy. And the first thing that was given up by the absolute monarchy to, um, you know, the sort of nobles and barons that were subject to the king was the ability to levy more taxes without their approval. That was the first concession. And if you think about how our existing online platforms work, they can change the terms of service. They can change the take rate, the underlying percentage, whenever they want. And while that might be okay if you're an ordinary user, if you're a business, that's a phenomenal problem. Because how do you predict your future revenue? How do you how do you understand whether you'll be able to tell a growth story yourself? So these platforms quickly suffocate all the value that can be created by new companies on top of them. So my vision for the metaverse and my company's vision, and I think also not just our vision, but that of so many other people within the space is we need to lean on Web3 principles. And Web3 principles suggest that that database doesn't have to be owned by one company. It could be owned by many companies, many individuals. And why is that good? It's not just good because it's like, oh, ethically nice and sounds good. It's good because it's economically good. You know, if you have a lot of people who can trust that the underlying platform will only take a small amount of value, then they can invest aggressively in that platform. We can all build businesses. Like, just imagine if there were many messaging applications or Facebook-like services that all shared from the same data set, how much more product innovation would there be, you know, while still keeping the consistency of everyone being able to talk to everyone? You know, imagine, look at the telecoms network, right? We all have different telco operators, but we can all phone call each other, right? We can all interact with each other. So there are definitely precedents of this sort of stuff working. Um, And I think we just need to move out of this digital dark age where four or five companies control everything to a much more interesting ecosystem the last thing I'll say is like, I, I don't think a consumer in the metaverse is the same as a person who watches a movie or listens to music or posts something on Facebook. They're co-creators. They're people who are part of the story, the adventure, the world that the metaverse represents. Maybe you even earn an income. Maybe your job is that you're like a bartender in the metaverse, right? Are you really going to do that job and be subject in, to absolutely no control, no vote? no decision about how that world operates, that feels very much like a regression of of the norms that we have come to accept in our society as being important for growth and for success.
0: It's interesting because um, there is an argument to be made uh, at the moment about, you know, the battle between self-interest and, you know, um, regulation and, and can those two things Coexist, but I, you know, I also think about this idea of value extraction, um, and you know the idea that big tech companies will do everything they can to exploit your your usage and how you use it. Um, and the only thing they're interested about is growth and increasing their bottom line. And there's this tension. It's almost like an abusive relationship and it's a one-way one way street. So I think a lot about, um, you know, that we were promised a, a prosperous internet or a prosperous infrastructure. And with all that being said, um, you know, Web3 is coming, the metaverse and, and all this new stuff which will elicit new leaders in the space in a way. So do you feel like we need, more ethical or altruistic kind of leaders in the space.
1: Uh, you know, I got to say, I'm not. I'm not motivated primarily by altruism when I describe um, a different way of doing things. So, if I just give you an example, looking at M Squared, which we're going to be more public about later in the year, so you're getting a little bit of pre-information here. You know, M Squared is an entity that will connect multiple metaverses together, and it'll allow every partner who builds a metaverse, like Yuga Labs with Bored Apes to run their own platform, to own their own relationship with users, to run their own stores, to have their own distribution, to do all of the things that platforms normally take away with you. But it will also force upon them the need to interoperate, to make sure assets can move freely between worlds, to pay a small but defined tax rate into that network, which won't go to us. It'll be shared by all of the people who own part of the network or who buy tokens or who are part of the system that the network represents. And it'll be reinvested into the world. And that isn't because, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it's cool and and positive for the world. That's because that will allow those companies. And if you're talking to major sports leagues um, or movie studios or communities of thousands or millions of fans in music, that'll allow those companies to confidently invest in their own metaverses in a way they never would if they were building on someone else's platform. If they were building on someone else's platform, they wouldn't invest in creating content. They would simply license their IP to that platform owner. And this is what you see happening with Epic Games, for example. You know, Epic Games is an amazing company and I love Fortnite and I love Epic, but they've had to spend billions and billions in acquiring users to come to their platform and to, you know, give away, I think, like $10 billion of free games just to get you to use the Epic Store. Because that's the only way they can incentivize content creators to give up something, which is to give up the freedom of determining the destiny of their own business in order to essentially grow the success of someone else's business. And this is not only you know, toxic over the long term. It's a bad economic idea. It limits the overall productivity of the system. You know, To use an analogy from the real world, dictatorships versus democracies, right? It doesn't really matter how you feel ethically about the two. If you're an economist, you always prefer, in general, a democracy. Why? Because you prefer the idea that a business will be able to invest in that country, confident that the rules are not going to change from under them. They're not going to suddenly have their factories confiscated or suddenly have the taxes change in a completely crazy way that nobody had any say or influence over. When When we get out of the idea that the services that that enable economic activity should become money grabbing businesses and focus on the fact that that economic activity at the top, the work that the content creators are doing, that the game developers are doing, that's where the value should accrue, then we just get a much bigger pie. We get much more content. We get much more in the way of experiences. And as you know, you know, from, from virtual society, from the book, my sense is as a as a world, as a society, what we should care most about now is enabling more people to have more fulfilling experiences more of the time. Because those fulfilling experiences, those are going to unlock a better life for everybody.
0: Yeah, and they will, and you will onboard you know millions of uh, creators. It's going to be incredible. Um, so I mean, but we don't have
1: to. Just just to finish on that, you know, the best part about our strategy is, is we don't have to. Our customers, our partners, they onboard those creators, and they're their creators. We've just created a system that, you know, enables them to build better experiences, but also to network those experiences together, you know, and that's, that's a different problem to building a big platform. But yeah, yeah, totally appreciate the question.
0: No, but you're talking about creating the infrastructure and then asking vendors to create the platforms where the creators will. Yeah, and we can help. Yeah, sure, sure.
1: Yeah, we're building platforms like we're building sure. other side with Yuga Labs, but but it's a different model in time, yeah. I think, to what right
0: I think just to finish on this point, and, you know, I, I want to move on to something else quickly, is that a lot of people, especially in the uh, technology space, but also like, you know, customers and pedestrians in the marketplace are pretty cynical and tired. So, you know, we need to move on from that. We need to find some CEOs and, um, you know, ethical, ty- <laughs> ethical tyrants, so to speak. Um, <laughs> It's 80 years from now um, and, you know, it's a day in the metaverse. You wake up, you have a coffee. In the real world, this isn't the metaverse. Um, I want you to walk us through what, if you've thought that far, what it looks like for our audience. When we talk about the metaverse so they get a real understanding, can itemise it from, you know, nine to six, doesn't need to be that convoluted, but it'd be interesting or helpful for someone to understand out there what, what would the metaverse look like maybe, you know, in a century from
1: now? I mean, a century from now, I think we will have brain-computer interfaces. I think we will move from experiencing the world through screens to actually embodying these other realities, these other worlds. You know, a century is a long time. Remember, it took, it was, it was less than 60 years from the Wright brothers, I think, flying a plane, something like 60, 70 years, to, to us standing on the moon. You know, and the rate of technological progress is going up faster and faster and faster. So barring some like horrible world ending event, you know, we know that we can create brain computer interfaces now that are relatively crude. I don't know if you saw recently, but an incredible company called Synchron, uh, they put a device inside um, the brains of I think it was paralyzed patients that went in through the uh, the veins in their neck and allowed them to mm-hmm. interact directly with machines. You know, our brains are capable of experiencing things that our eyes cannot show them. Our visual cortex has more capability to to produce cool things than, than, than we currently are able to kind of feed it. So I think in that other world, that other reality that you're describing, we're not going to live in one metaverse or one space. We're going to have the possibility of going beyond our quite limited experiences now to potentially living in many, many other worlds. And these other worlds don't just have to be pleasure-filled fantasies. These can be worlds where we discover things, um, you know, create new kinds of society and community, have and expand the notions that we currently have of culture. I, I think this project, this larger vision of building a metaverse yeah. that isn't just some like new way to sell people ads, but it's like actually an expansion of human experience. I think it's something on some level we all crave. I mean, I know I did growing up. I always wanted. You know why do we love? Why do we love um, fantasy? Why do eleven-year-olds love Harry Potter? Why do all of us think of space travel? We all sense that we're capable of having richer, deeper experiences than the world can actually give us. And if we can truly make the jump from a society that's focused on things and commodities and stuff to experiences, and if those experiences can be delivered efficiently inside other realities. Yeah. You know, and you, you, you did tell me 70 years from now, right? So that's quite a far, far leap in the future. You know, who, who knows what that world could be like. But, you know, but long before we get there, mm. even now, even if we're just talking about video games and screens and, and hanging out, I think in the short term, people are just going to get to have more fun. They're going to get to have better experiences in these other worlds that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg talks a lot about having meetings mm. on in Zoom. I think that's a pretty boring use case. Uh, you know, for for the metaverse. Like, I don't, the last thing I want is to go to like an (laughs) office in, in the metaverse. What I want is, you know, to have and make new and meaningful relationships, to overcome new challenges, to interact with people that I couldn't normally interact with. That is the promise. And the promise, the great news about this promise is that it's not even a new idea. It's existed since we basically, you know, dreamed of other realities. And that's pretty much, as you know, from my book, from the beginning of our society. So, that's the end game here and it's a very hopeful end game. It's an end game that doesn't that 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 takes us from a overworld of, a of very destructive, very undirected growth that's bad for the environment to perhaps something a little bit better. Maybe and maybe this optimism is unpopular these days. I think I'm supposed to say how terrible the future will be.
0: Um, no, I mean just reading from your book you 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 I would use the word idealistic about how the metaverse can shape or transform or terraform our society, and it's fun and it's interesting, and there's a lot of prognosticators right now out there thinking about how you know these tools um, of connectivity are going to change our world. But you know, just to go to the to the other way to to put the slide uh, across the other side of, of the fence at this point, why do you do what you do, Herman? I mean, you've told me the impetus for for what 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 what, what you're passionate about, what what you see as the future, but a lot of people are challenged and anxious about the future. And if you really read what's going on, this might set about a, a kind of a nihilistic framework for this or an existential question, but I, I would, you know, I would like to know how you see the metaverse, especially within this framework, that we are a destructive species, that the um, it, is, it is almost imminent that we face a catastrophe of some sort to the human species Um, or at least most of the mainstream media would have you believe it. And there are some climate tipping points that are going to be setting off serious alarm bells in the next 50 to X amount of years, which in order of magnitude would showcase um, some really uh, destructive uh, events. So what is the point of building the metaverse within the, you know, the, the prospect of us not being here?
1: It's so important in the context of the challenges that we face, and I'll and I'll tell you why. Um, so much of the harm we're doing to the planet and to each other comes because the fulfillment which we know from psychology we need, the fulfillment that self-determination theory tells us, we need in having experiences that make us feel more competent, more capable, able to make meaningful choices, able to have rich relationships with one another. They're very expensive on the environment. They require us to, to make things, clothes, fashion, items, um, you know, travel. All of these things are destructive and, and, and consume a lot of resources. And of course, they're not going away. I'm not proposing that they're going to magically stop being an, a need. But if even a small percentage of the money people spend and the time people spend with physical things can be replaced with digital assets or virtual experiences... That's an amazing thing for the environment. Mm -hmm. That's going to dramatically reduce. I mean, even think about the fact that we have work from home now uh, for a lot of companies. Those are car journeys that aren't happening. Those are travels. Those are business trips that aren't polluting the atmosphere. Those are, you know, physical spaces that can be repurposed for other things. So we need to radically redesign our society Mm -hmm. around providing people with the fulfillment that we need as a species because that's not going to go away right i think it's really important to appreciate that we can't ask human nature to change and for people to suddenly become martyrs to the forces that in reality we know from psychology we know from our history we just we just can't ask people to do that i mean i'm from a developing part of the world where um you know lots of people have never had the opportunity to experience the, the kind of comforts that we take for granted in our world now is the right way to give all of those people opportunity to, you know, to, to, you know, to continue to sort of damage and destroy the environment. Or what if the metaverse can in some small way contribute to that? Like I'm a cricket fan. Imagine letting thousands or millions of cricket fans around the world, you know, hang out with their favorite cricket players and watch matches in the metaverse you know, feel the roar of the crowd and the experience of being somewhere like Lord's Cricket Ground without having to fly there, right? Without having to to add that harm and that damage. So I think the metaverse is a way for us to more efficiently fulfill many of the needs that we have. The other thing that I'd say is it's also a way of bringing people together. Like a lot of the harm that we're seeing in the world right now is not only a product of environmental destruction, but also misinformation, misinformation, the breakdown of relationships between different categories and groups of people in society. And social media is very much to blame for that, as is, as is generally the way we communicate. But what's kind of unique about video games and metaverse experiences is that they bring people together in really weird ways. Like there are people currently in active war zones who are match made together in video games, you know, because of the way video games work you know, without realizing it, right. Potentially on the same team, potentially interacting together in some, in some really strange way. There are friendships made online all the time between rich and poor. It's one of the few places where whatever race you are, whatever sexual orientation you are, whatever gender you are, right. You're in a place where you can, you can be equal. You can interact with people on an equal footing. These all seem like very important additions to to our society. The other thing you mentioned about, oh, you know, doom and gloom and the end of the world, like this will be something like the seventh or eighth end of the world that we've been through, you know, from the Bronze Age collapse to the Black Plague to, you know, we, we, we are a very resilient species. And I think we should definitely do all we can to seriously change our society and address the many challenges that we face. But I personally reject raw doomerism as a, as a, as a solution to anything. You know, I think, it, I think it can quickly become poisonous in its own
0: right. Your investors would be happy to hear this.
1: Well, I think I hope anybody would be happy here. I, I I think it's hard to imagine waking up in the morning and going, well, the world is ending. What what should I do? You know, like that doesn't feel that doesn't feel very useful.
0: That's why uh, SSRIs were created. Um, <laughs> Although,
1: funny story, we don't even know how those. No, work, I know. So I read that, I read that <laughs> recently.
0: So if we were to take, you know, if we were to take like a zoom out approach, because I'm going to be totally upfront with you. I'm not a gamer, so I don't come at this from the gaming. I was more fascinated by the philosophical approach that you took, although I find gaming a fascinating aspect and, you know, there's lots and lots of people in the world right now. I've read, you know, what 200 million people are, are using roblox at the moment a month or is it a day okay's
1: 3.2 billion gamers now something Unbelievable. Like that, some crazy so
0: I am that so i am I'm becoming a minority I'm very aware of it um but you know gaming as such it's still it it's created you know what would what will be um the metaverse because as you know the confluence between gaming and metaverse well is, I would
1: I would I would there a close little to each thought other. there, which is um maybe a little different to what people imagine. Sure. Gaming in the metaverse have in common technology and skills, but they're actually quite different businesses and they're quite different sets of experiences that you may experience in the virtual space. And the reason for that is that video games are already very saturated. There is already Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. They're not going anywhere. Um, And the thing about Call of Duty and World of Warcraft is combining them together doesn't make a whole lot of sense because You know, imagine taking Call of Duty and combining it with Harry Potter. I mean, I might take my machine gun into Hogwarts and fight Voldemort, but that's going to be confusing for everybody. You know, the whole school is going to fall apart in that context. So the the idea of the metaverse is interoperable in content that makes sense to combine together with experiences that will probably not replace video games, but actually augment them with different experiences. That's I think quite important, and the press tends to try to make everything into a big battle for you know who will win. Will it be Microsoft? Will it be Facebook? You know, will it be improbable? Will it be somebody else? I think everybody are is 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 participating in the expansion of opportunity into new and diverse experiences. Um, so you know, so I, and I would say it's quite dangerous to yeah. conflate video games in the metaverse because they. Create value in such different ways. you know the metaverse is so much about web 3 and digital assets. Video games are so much about um, you know traditional entertainment.
0: But I would say there's maybe, maybe just take us on a quick journey here the the idea of blockchain and web 3, which is oh, currently the railroads are being built right now for it. Um, how does that I mean there are many gamers that that will use those tools. And we'll expect them when they transition over to the metaverse, if they haven't already. So describe how the Web3 universe and blockchain will not only support, but advance the metaverse as well. So it's it's
1: it's the most important piece of the puzzle, because the metaverse is a network of meaningful experiences and things that relate to each other, where value can be transferred from one place to another. So without some way to quantify that value and transfer that value between one experience or business and another experience or business, the metaverse can't work. It would be like many villages with no roads connecting them. And you really need something like Web3's core pieces, blockchains and their infrastructure to make that happen. Otherwise, you, you can't create commerce between worlds. You just end up with one platform owned by one company, and then you're back to the same problems. Owned by problems
0: MasterCard before. or something.
1: Well, or like, well, rather Facebook, most likely, right? <laughs> exactly. Or whoever else it might be, or Apple. Yeah. Um, I think the other really important thing about, about Web3 is that it allows for people to share in the value created in much more granular ways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the most amazing things about Bode Apes Yacht Club, again, Yuga Labs is, is one of our customers, and, and there are many other IPs in Web3 that are like this, is that... They actually give the IP the right to use the IP to the people who own the asset. So there are people who've started businesses based on their board ape. And that's incredible. Can you imagine starting a business based on Darth Vader? Like you'd never be allowed to do that, right? Disney lawyers would be, you know, all over you. But the idea of these stories and IPs and worlds that share value, that continue to expand and to be added to. That's very important. And again, crypto and Web3 give us a way of accounting for those things. That said, you know, the, the, the first incarnations have been scammy and awful, but the first incarnations of the internet and of, of, of sort of, you know, the dot-com boom were absolutely scammy and piles of crap, right? There were so many terrible companies. We don't even remember them today that, you know, made no sense whatsoever. It was, it was a meme back then. You know, the dot-com crash was full of ridiculous businesses. Um, that, that made no sense. But you know, I think that the potential, as we saw then and as we see now, is really, really transformative. And I guess depending on the timing that this this podcast goes out, the market right now is is absolutely being obliterated, right, with with um the macro conditions in the world. But behind the scenes, builders are still building, the foundations are still yeah. being laid. And, mm-hmm. and I think you know, we're gonna see an incredible renaissance in the next wave of these companies.
0: And Bloomberg Intelligence, I think you reference this estimate the global revenue from the Metaverse. Um, and I'm always, you know, skeptical of some of these predictions, but you know, eight hundred billion, it could be more. By I saw, I saw one this
1: morning, which is um, which made me laugh a little because I, I don't know where they're getting this number from. But it is, I have to tell you this because it's so funny. It is uh, M- McKinsey is saying potential value of up to five trillion by 2030. Right. So, you know, th- these are numbers that I... <laughs> even I as a massive optimist in the space just don't understand where they come from. And it also further highlights that it has to be different from video games because look, the video game market has grown steadily for the last 30 years. It'll shrink a little this year because Mm -hmm. post COVID, but you know, it's grown like, I think seven, 8% every year for 30 years. So how exactly are we getting to 5 trillion from 200 billion in in eight years? I don't know, but you know, it it has to involve more Mm -hmm. experiences more than just video games for that to be the
0: case. You seem like you, you really inhabit or you devour this stuff. Do you just eat, sleep and breathe this stuff? Do you have time for anything else?
1: Absolutely. I mean, look, the promise of this, the promise of this is you get to live in another world. You get to live in the most amazing story you can imagine. But I'm not it interested is- in that. But 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 you are, because every day you live in so many different worlds in the way that you operate. I mean, whenever you read a book or watch a film or think of or dream of anything, right? I mean, we, we are creatures that already live in multiple other realities. I think...
0: Well, I don't. I live in this reality.
1: But what is this reality? You know, when you put on a, a label or a fashion branded clothes, uh, yeah. piece of clothing, you're in a sense inhabiting another reality. I guess... If I make it sound <laughs> like you're stepping into Narnia, I can see why it would be a bit off-putting. You know, it, it seems like it's taking you away from the real world. Yeah. But I guess in my, in my sense, then maybe we should put it a different way. Maybe we should put it a different way. Let's expand the real world, right? Let's expand it in terms of the different opportunities for culture, for creativity, sure. for you know, new experiences. And that is hard to pass up. You know, I live and breathe it because I want new experiences. I think new experiences make our lives richer, make 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 our experience and make our life worth living, to be honest.
0: Yeah. Who's the most interesting person you've met in this area? Like you just talk to this person, you're like, get so much inspiration that might not even work in, in the text. But, but who is someone that that you feel charges you with energy
1: oh i've got to say two two people two people well three people i'll actually give you who i think are, are mind-blowingly inspiring one is uh, phil rosedale who created second life uh, you know whenever i spend time with him you know he's lived breathed and thought about the metaverse more than most people have have in my in my space and you know he he deeply understands the potential of what it can be you know, Chris Dixon is another person. Uh, he sits on my board, but he's obviously one of the most famous investors in, in crypto and Web3. But Chris is known as being one of the earliest investors in Oculus. You know, he invested in Web3 long before it became fashionable. And of course, he backed Improbable. probable. But I find his entire outlook and worldview, you know, really unusual and really interesting. And then lastly, I think um, the artist Rafiq uh, Andol who is this incredible incredible generative artist if you've never checked out his work i would recommend doing it i mean he's he uses a combination of neural networks and data visualization to build just jaw dropping things and i think you know people like this always make always remind me that you know we're going to the only way we're going to make this this new reality this new future or this new expansion of reality is by bringing together you know incredibly talented people like that
0: yeah one of the things that you mention in your book and I think it's a great book. It's very articulate. <clears throat> I've chomped my way through as much as I can in the short amount of time th- that I have. Thank you. Thank I, you wish, I, I
1: really wish I
0: had a, a, some kind of neural upload. Um, sure. I'm quite a speed reader, but it, it would be nice to you just, do the
1: audio book on, on fast. I actually recorded the audio book myself, which I'm never going to do again. That was a huge amount of time. I have to say,
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love, I love, I love the audio, audio versions. I would have done that, but yeah, um, first of all, the comment on the book, uh, and then, you know, follow up with the question, I sensed a real level of urgency in the book. And what I mean by that was, from what I read, it felt like there was a need to correct a lot of the falsehoods out there. But you also wanted to correct it just in time before the market spirals, because the marketplace will start exploiting as much as it can out of this. But you also wanted to course correct for a lot of people out there, a vision of what the metaverse could look like. And it goes off into some pretty wild areas. So one of them you talk about is speciation, which I love. Oh,
1: we're going, we're going there already. Okay. Where was, we are because I buried that at the end of the book, hoping yeah, like yeah, only yeah, 10% yeah. of the audience would read it. But okay. Yeah.
0: But but speciation, there's two ideas I want to talk with you about as we come into the to the final um, the final innings to use a cricketing term uh, of this chat. Speciation is quite an interesting term. It doesn't get used so much um, in 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 the world right now, but applied to the metaverse, it's fascinating. So you're talking about different communities, branches of humans and ideas. a fragmentation of the human species in a good way, correct? I guess what
1: I'm, yeah, that's, that's, that's one way of putting it. I guess, I guess another way to, to put it is to say, look, if you spend more and more time getting fulfilled, having a job, making relationships in different worlds, worlds with potentially very large communities, but, You know, we already see this now, like if you're really into the music scene, all your friends are in the music scene, you know, you know and think a lot about music. If you're massively into surfing, you know, you're you're part of that community. If you live in another part of the world entirely, like if you live in Australia versus South America, you are immersed in a sense in another world. The metaverse will take that to another level. It'll give groups and communities the chance to really live in other realities. And if you then add in brain-computer interfaces long-term, then things get really freaky, right? I mean, what what does that world look like when, you know, you and I, you know, I know that you, like me, share a deep passion for Victorian England. You know, we could perhaps live in Victorian England together for like a hundred years, solving crimes as Sherlock Holmes. As steampunk, yeah. A a steampunk, a steampunk (laughs) Sherlock Holmes. You know, let's say we did that. Let's say we were able to do that through a brain Mm -hmm. computer interface. Let's say we were able to truly, immersively live in that world. When we come back out of that again, what do we have in common with someone who didn't do that? You know, do are we, are we do, how much do we have in common? You know, what what does it mean for us to be part of the same group or community? And I guess my argument here is both a positive and a negative one. The positive one is, look, there's a real benefit to diversity of experience. You know, the more people out there having richer and wider experiences, potentially the more great ideas that can filter back in and make our society richer for everyone. Think of the great literature you love, the great music you love. You know, if you only get one Taylor Swift or, or Ariana Grande, you know, these are my music choices now coming out, uh, you know, unfortunately, very quickly. But, you know, if you only have one of those per 100,000 or a million people in the population, the more people that can be exposed to more rich experiences, well, mm-hmm. then the more, the more the world will grow in, in its cultural richness. And if there was one point, one point in my book, just one point, it would be this. We measure wealth the wrong way. We think of wealth as the stuff we have, the output of our society in goods and commodities. When really, as time continues, as automation improves, as everything we have becomes richer, wealth is the wealth of experiences and diverse perspectives and ideas, concrete ideas that our society has and trades and can kind of grow in. So speciation is the idea that, okay, there's a positive to that. We're going to get a lot more of it. But there's also a negative, which is, we're going to change from one another in quite a lot of strange ways. And I'm also a believer, this isn't in the book, and I'm thinking of writing another book about it, but I'm a believer that, you know, a lot of the technologies that now involve modifying human beings in different ways, whether it's brain-computer interfaces, whether it's performance-enhancing drugs, whether it's, um, you know, even things like cosmetic surgery, you know, they're taking us to a place where we're all becoming quite different from each other. And we have to learn to accept that, to cope with that, and to understand the meaning of that. Um, You know, and what does it mean for things like governance? You know, it's hard enough to govern a country like America when, you know, people have such differing views, but they still at least share the same reality. How much harder will it get when we share different realities?
0: Yeah. I just had an interesting thought, though. You talk so much about this idea of, you know, different experiences, different people and, um, you know, the different demographics that might adopt the metaverse. I think a lot about, again, the pace of change or return to speciation in a minute, I think about Moore's Law, but then I think applied to culture, um, that is a thing, meaning, you know, if we were to somehow apply a vasectomy on culture so it couldn't produce any more change, it might be quite wise or fruitful right now because it seems to me you're the CEO of, a, you know, a transformative technological company, you know, doing wild and willy Wonka things, but people mostly Uh, can't keep up with the unheralded um, pace of change, which is causing enormous anxiety out there. And so what we're saying, those in the technology space, that it is the next stage of the development of human culture, whether we like it or whether we don't. Unfortunately, that is, but it is affecting politics, but we don't see the correlation so much, but it is. It's affecting our brain, our decision-making processes. And so, As culture moves with technology, those things are obviously very intertwined. That level of of anxiety um, increases as well. Um, Is it moving too fast?
1: I think a lot of how we see the world is influenced by the poisonous nature of social media right now. Um, You know, it's difficult to disentangle what's real and what's your feed. You know, like just think of how much you hear about Elon Musk on a daily basis. If you go to any news website, you know, I I have no, I have no positive or negative feelings towards Elon Musk, but I can't go through my day by looking at my phone without a mention of this man, right. Or Kim Kardashian or whoever Mm -hmm. it is. It's quite weird how our society has ended up hyper-focused on like nine or 10 news stories, wherever Mm -hmm. you are. Like if someone dies in a car crash, you know, 9,000 miles away you might hear about it and it may be something you're forced to confront and think about on your commute home, even though it perhaps, while tragic, has almost nothing to do with you. Um, you know, I think I think while I, I don't know that we're, we could we could even if we wanted to change the pace of, of cultural shift or technological shift, those things are those things are forces well beyond the control of any one company or person. I do think we need to confront the reality of a society that makes us feel so anxious Mm-hmm. Makes us feel so scared all the time. Mm-hmm. I think we have to ask whether we need to change something about the way in which our social media is organized.
0: Mm-hmm. We
1: need to create perhaps different rules. I mean, I, I'm always shocked that you know this is. I, I hate constantly dunking on Facebook because you know I don't have any special animosity towards the company. I mean, I, but you know what Facebook is creating. But meta, Facebook, whatever, <laughs> rebrand it. You know, it's the same, it's the same flavor. You can they call they
0: own what you say as well. So you, can, okay. you,
1: can, you can call it chocolate or you can call it poo, but it's it's the same thing, really, in, in, in the context of, but look, the, the point is, um, you know, the the decision to amplify content without moderation leads directly to this. And you look instead at something like Wikipedia, right? Wikipedia works fine. Despite the fact that it has far less of the infrastructure or money of Facebook,
0: and but you know, the fact I don't, I don't ninety percent feel... of pe- people that edit it are, are men. But that's specific. well, that that is a problem. <laughs> but at
1: least if I, you know, Google basic facts, you know, I can, I can, I can see those basic facts without, you know, wild misinformation, sure. you know, edited in it. You know, there is definitely errors in Wikipedia, but it's. It's, it's, it's hardly as bad because the incentives are different. Mm. So I think I think we need to fix the way we communicate and talk and think about society. I also think in journalism now, again, partly um, due to the ad economy, everything has to be a world-ending headline. You know, no, nothing can be like a moderate headline. It's either the end of the world or something's about to completely change or shift, and, you know, that is that is problematic. You know, when it comes to um, the pace of change, one other thing our company does is we help governments and other organizations understand this change by building simulations of the world. So the metaverse doesn't only have to be about making the world weird. It can also be about understanding how disease spreads or how infrastructure could be better better managed or how to help, mm-hmm. you know, right now with top topical world events right now, you know, how we can help end or reduce conflicts. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot of good that can come from this too. It, it's, it's wiser to embrace this change and to learn to, to adapt to it than it is to try to fight it in general, I think. I think whenever we've ignored or fought it, it's just got worse.
0: Mm. Uh, we might see in the future a, 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 you know, a Pol Pot or a, or a Noriega or an or a Idi Amin in the metaverse. You never, you never know how they'll be embodied or how they'll use it usurping or hacking people's brain interfaces and you know co opting talk about extraction well, value, that would be you've
1: really gone to a dark future well, no, well, now no, you've gone to like no, a whole I, you know I, you, you've gone to a whole kind of a whole other i want to see this movie yeah i
0: think i think it's interesting <laughs> No, i i'm i'm quite i'm a very positive i work in tech so you have to be positive because everyone's on some kind of you know, idealistic steroids, but to be honest with you, you know, it, it is interesting to think about the extraction value because, you know, you, you think about brain interfaces. I put a discussion together for COGX. You should check it out. It's really interesting on neural hacking. And Raphael Euster, who's a leading uh, pioneer in this space, is actually trying to convene a uh, international uh framework much like the united nations that mandates that brains can't be hacked in the future so i don't want to get into that's a whole three-hour discussion but that is something you know to be worried about as well for people yeah
1: i would not be plugging a facebook brand brain computer interface into my brain if i'm honest with you i think i think we're going to need we're going to need governments and companies to create far more trustworthy brands but the good news is the technology for anything like that is so far away we barely understand how um how many aspects of our brain work now. There's a fantastic book. uh, I think it's referenced in mine actually called the idea of the mind. And it's brilliant because it really dismantles many of our, many of our notions about, about what, I mean, like you mentioned SSRIs earlier, earlier this, you know, in this podcast, like we don't really know how they work. We don't know much about how our brain works. So the good news is we're, we're way away from that problem. Um, and I hope by the time we get to that type of technology, we've evolved to the point where we have smarter ways of thinking about regulation. Regulation is good. And I, and I, you know, if I had to close on one idea, it would be I absolutely think the regulation in the metaverse is going to be a very important part of the story.
0: Yeah. So just <clears throat> coming back to the speciation idea, which I think is so interesting, there are two things that I think about a lot. And I'm really, really happy, Herman, that you discuss this in your book because it's something that I... Um, Mill over uh, doesn't keep me awake at night, but I definitely think about all the technology that I see because part of my job is looking at all the you know the latest trends and stuff. One is I think about the value of government. so one of the things I want to get your take on, which I think is interesting is I've had this discussion several times in different iterations. I get the increasingly strange feeling that government is isn't fit for purpose anymore, or maybe not now, but maybe in the future, and they're getting that sense of irrelevance as well. So once we move into the metaverse, they will become more outdated, more outmoded, more irrelevant, not designed for an imminent future, almost like, uh, you know, how we move from the agricultural revolution into the industrial revolution. How the hell is the government going to keep tabs on billions of different species, to put it crudely?
1: Well, I wonder if perhaps the metaverse needs... In a sense, its own governance, um, you know, and I think that's a little bit of where the book kind of takes us as well. Which is, I think, you know, if you have a lot of people who are earning an income on a platform, they deserve a say. And maybe where you get to is platforms that have voting or have, um, you know, decentralized governance or normal governments, but that can support them. And you see a little bit of this in Web three. This is also why I think Web three is so important. I think real world governments have a really important role to play. But that needs to be married by new kinds of organizations that enfranchise their members to contribute to the decision making of a system like this. You know, democracy and government has had kind of a bad couple of years, you know what I mean, in terms of PR. And I think part of the reason is that our lawmakers are so out of date with technology, you know. If we were to say, to, if, if governments were to throw up their hands and say, we just don't understand how to regulate property rights, property rights are too confusing for us, and we don't want to be involved in that, or we don't want to be involved in civil defense. I think a lot of people would be like, what the hell is the point of you then, right? These two things are so vitally important to our existence. This is sort of why we have you. I think if government throws up its hands and says, we don't understand technology, you know, technology is this thing that companies are going to do. Then I think a lot of people rightly, especially young people, will be like, well, what is the point of you then? You know, this is what I think they're
0: asking right now.
1: And I think and I think they're right to. But I think that is not the answer to that is that government must evolve. Government must become savvier, better at thinking about how it interacts with and delivers technology and technology solutions. You know, it's the saddest thing about crypto and Web3 is the lack of real constructive involvement from government. You know, where are the sort of nation state coins that are really doing well or that are focused on- They're the in benefits? El
0: Salvador.
1: Well, I mean, exactly, but that's not necessarily, you know, where I would have hoped that this stuff sure. would begin. You know? Sure, yeah.
0: sure.
1: Yeah. So look, I think, I think, um, I think you know, it's a, great, it's a great note to end on in that in that we need to see evolution of government. We can't, you know, companies, no company, no altruistic CEO, not me, not my business, not anybody, is the answer to a healthy, successful metaverse. The answer to a healthy, successful metaverse is a confluence of different forces coming together in an effective way. That means government, that means a collection of companies, that means creators, that means people who are, you know, as users feel empowered to actually make decisions and contribute to the way these worlds work. And I don't think the big technology titans of today are going to be a big part of that solution. You know, the good news is they all exist because they disrupted their various predecessors. Right. So perhaps there's hope that, you know, there will be more disruption to come.
0: Yeah. So just to close, Herman, um, you know, it's been an amazing chat chat. fascinating, and uh, I think a a lot of people will take a lot from this. I want to know what, what your hopes, and I know you've told me what your hopes are for, for improbable, but just, Just to take an inward look for a moment, you're talking about Herman as the CEO of Improbable. What are your, you know, goals and and dreams in the imminent future? You know, someone who has a sphere of influence that potentially um, could equal Mark Zuckerberg. And and I don't say that lightly. You, you, You might in the future. How do you... How do you, what is your goals, you know, as a, as a person in the, in the next. Well, to me,
1: to me, and I, and I, you know, made this point in the beginning and I make it again. I think we have to get away from the idea of the all powerful tech CEO whose vision and whose, whose infallible nature results in brilliant decisions, right? There are a thousand people at my company Nine hundred and ninety-nine of which are smarter than me, and who do much of the work of building and enabling what we create. And then our customers and partners are so vital in it too. I think if I have a role to play, the role is to try to be authentic and to cohere together mm-hmm. great people, great people who aren't just at my company, but are, but are also around it, and try to give those people the support they need to be really amazing. And I think that is what um, you know the the model of leadership that we should that we should follow is. It's not a new idea you know, all through history, leadership has been about collaborative groups successfully, you know, governing or managing or growing or creating, you know, just think of your favorite rock band, right? It wasn't, it wasn't just one person. Well, in some cases it was, but you know, this is, this is sort of the way I look at, I look at the model. I think if, if anything needs to die from this old era of tech, it's the hoodie wearing CEO standing on a stage, unveiling the future you know, by fiat, by diktat to, you know, thousands of adoring fans, you know, let's, let's let that die. Right. You know, it, it, it's, it's a relic of a time when we like to deify people by basically giving them credit for everyone else's work. You know, I, I want to be, I want to be um, part of, I hope a wave of companies that is much more humble in its approach to appreciating where the work is getting done. And what I love about web three, what I love about crypto is it doesn't have a CEO. You know, there isn't the CEO of a CEO of crypto, right? It, it, is, it is a collective of people operating in really effective ways together. Um, you know, I, I, like, I like my job, but I don't think it's the most important job mm-hmm. in my company or the most important mm-hmm. job in my sector.
0: So we won't see you in a turtleneck anytime soon. Well,
1: I mean, I might still like to wear a turtleneck. I mean, that's a pretty snazzy, <laughs> snazzy type of clothing. And, you know, not, there's nothing wrong with being on a stage. But, Black you know, turtleneck. But yeah. maybe, maybe not, maybe not, no. But, I, you know, I hope you, see, I hope you see people who aren't me, to be blunt. Yeah, um, you know, and a lot more of the people around around things. I mean, there's so many amazing people working in this space. I want us all to get together and and be better at at communicating together as well.
0: Well, Herman, I mean, if this chat is anything to go by, I'll be honest. Um, you know, we're in good hands, and and uh, I hope some people out there, creators, um, and engineers, and and coders, or just anyone out there takes note and and, uh, can think about, you know, what they want to do when the metaverse does arrive at their mailbox and and onto their screens. Uh, It's going to be an exciting future and um, one I hope uh, will be egalitarian and invite everyone. And I should say as well that um, your book is out soon. Is that right?
1: Yep, out very soon.
0: And uh, everyone should get a copy. It's great, especially the first and the last chapter. (laughs) No, I'm joking. It's a great book. It's a great book. Very, very, very well written. Get the audio version as well. Any uh, final thoughts, Herman?
1: No, no, no. Thank you so much for a great chat.
0: You've been listening to the 52 Insights podcast. I'm Ari Stein. Thanks to Portico Quartet for their track, Endless, and Joel Stein of Glass Maps for producing this podcast. Sign up to the 52 Insights newsletter and subscribe to my podcast channel to get notified of my latest interviews with extraordinary people.